Welcome to this bonus episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We're going to get going into some of the questions that we asked Regina after her presentation. Questions that came from our in-house as well as our online audience. Enjoy. As we get going, uh, you know, part of interfaith dialogue is uh, is respect. Uh, respect for each other and, and where we're coming from. And for my part, I'm going to try my best uh, to, you know, because sometimes the right language is hard, hard to come by. And sometimes I'm going to trip on my language. I fully... <laughs> expect that. I'm really good at it, actually. Um, I'm going to trip on my language and all, and all of that, but with a little bit of grace for each other, and, uh, you know, if we can have some good, good give and take, uh, we'll learn some stuff and maybe have some fun while we're at it. So, Regina, thank you so much uh, for, your, for your presentation. Thank you. Uh, we, we were talking earlier, um, you're used to interviewing people, and, and now yeah. I'm interviewing, so I'm not sure who's going to be doing this thing but uh you want to tell me about your childhood <laughs> that's you awesome lie down because that is my first question for you oh, um, <laughs> oh honestly boy. it's like written here regina it says uh tell us about your upbringing and but but specifically uh and, and maybe it's it has to do with your upbringing maybe it doesn't where does your passion for building bridges and connection come from uh I I just love meeting uh, I love meeting people I love meeting people from different walks of life um, you know I have a very multicultural family and uh, I love I love my religion I love Islam um, it is what gets me up every day sometimes at four thirty in the morning so I can do my morning prayer. Uh, and I, I, I do absolutely love it, love it. And I also love when I see that same love in another person for their faith. Mm -hmm. I recognize that. Um, my first faith talk show, I had two evangelical Christians on the show, great guys who were willing to <laughs> take a leap <laughs> of faith for my show. Yeah. And I asked them flat out on the show, do you think I'm going to hell? Mm. Uh, they knew I was going to ask them that ahead of time. They were aware. And it was pretty much determined by the end of the show that, yes, if I continued with my beliefs, I would be going to hell. And I am absolutely okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm not going to be offended by that because I don't believe that. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, But I still admire these two men because in this world of increasing, you know, I believe in separation of church and state, but now it's become increasingly push religion out of any public space whatsoever. Keep it in your homes. Nobody wants to hear about it. You go to your church, good, okay. Only talk about who people who are just like you and that's it. And I think that has a very, very negative effect for our community, very negative effect. And so when I see two men like them who are so proud to live their Christian identities on their sleeve, I admire that very, very much. And I think that has, even though they think I'm gonna go to hell, they still like me. I know they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're, we get a, coffee, a cup of coffee. We still get together sometimes, and we chit-chat, and they're hilarious. I love them. I love mm -hmm. them. And I observed both of their churches, and it was, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I love when I find that, that depth of faith in other people. It gives me hope. It gives me hope. I don't, I don't think we're going to get anywhere in the world going out into the public thinking, um, I need you to believe what I believe. Because I think we're at a crisis. We are at a crisis. 
we're at such a point where we have a presidential nominee mentioning Muslims getting shot with bullets dipped in pig's blood. That's the kind of, that, that's what it's gotten to. That, that's our country, where that's um, pretty much, he's still there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, let me get off that, go ahead. <laughs> no, you know, it's your passion for building connections and that's happening, uh, sounds like one conversation at a time, one talk show. One cup of coffee at a time. One cup of coffee at a time. Sometimes, I have had some, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, I write for the Post Bulletin, I'm on the editorial advisory board. Every time I put out a piece, there are, there are the, the Facebook comments on my mm. articles are horrendous. They're horrendous. And I, it's, it is kind of self-defacing yeah. to read them. But once you start reading it, it's like you can't stop. Stay away from the trolls. Woo! Right? Yeah. There's this one guy, and he has this awesome, perf- he has these big sunglasses. And like every time I look forward to seeing his picture, it's just, I don't know. I, I would love to meet him. And so for a couple of people, I said, look, I'm not going to go back and forth with you on Facebook and defend verses from the Quran. It's a waste of time. Yeah. You're not even going to read it. Let's meet for coffee okay. and talk. And it's happened. It's happened. I met um, a woman, an atheist. She reached out to me on my um, city Facebook page and she, she left me a message and she said she, what she felt about the hijab and she f- said that she lives for the day when Muslim women will take off their hijabs. Like, That's what you're living for? <laughs> and I said, let's meet, let's meet for coffee. And we talked. And because um, I want to hear what her perspective is too, like that restaurant owner. Yeah. I have no idea where that guy's from, what his experiences are, what he knows about Islam. You know, if I were in his shoes, grew up wherever he grew up, yada yada yada, would I be thinking any different? So for true interfaith dialogue, if you want a connection there, it really has to require somebody willing to take the higher ground. Even when you're like, man, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have to be defending, you know, all this kind of stuff. Somebody's going to have to. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's going to have to take the punches in order to make a difference. And you have to be willing to be extremely uncomfortable. One of the observances that I went to, I left barely, practically in tears by the time I left mm-hmm. the building. And on the way home, I said, why? Why am I doing this? And the person who drove me, she's like, isn't this what you wanted to do? with observing, you wanted to be uncomfortable. That's why you were doing it. Because that's the only way you make a difference is if you are uncomfortable and you go home in tears wondering, why am I doing this? When you get to that point, then you know that maybe you are doing something right. My my wife is a Japanese American uh, woman, born and raised here as were her parents. Um, huh. We're at this party uh, some years ago and we're waiting in line. And this guy's behind us in line and, and he, we're talking and he looks at my wife and says, so where are you from? And she says, oh, Spokane, Washington. He goes, no, where are you from? <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> from, and, yeah. and she goes, Oh, okay. So you're asking about my my nationality. I'm I'm half half Japanese, and 
he looks at his wife and says, oh, she's so plain spoken for a Japanese girl. <laughs> oh, yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, you know, I mean, so say something about that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have been, uh, somebody once came up to me and asked me if I had cancer. Mm. Was that why I was covering my hair? Do you really go up to somebody and ask them if you have, they have cancer? What if I did? Yeah. Where do you think that you could come off asking a question like that? Mm -hmm. Now, I do believe if you're, if you're a marginalized group and you are wishing that the dominant culture is able to understand you, you're going to have to, again, you know, take the higher ground and know that, you know, people may, may not know how to phrase the question correctly and yeah. you shouldn't be too harsh because then yeah. people are going to be never want to going to ask you anything ever again kinda, but kinda that was pretty with, yeah that was yeah. pretty you know but i had a co-worker one time ask me um you know where are you from and i said philadelphia and they said where are your parents from philadelphia where are your grandparents from philadelphia <laughs> after that they stopped with, uh, with the grandparents um you know if you had gone on a little further um i, w I would tell you that i have a great grandmother from ireland and i have I have two great-grandparents from Ireland. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but part of that is is kind of like where I started with, with the conversation of you know what, hey, we're going to say some things that might be off a little bit, and it's, so it's a, part of it is frustration, I'm sure, and another part is extending grace. Right. Uh, you know, I, I would be in the wrong field of work if I would be you know take offense to everything that was thrown at me. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Yeah. Uh, is there a question on, online, it looks like? Sure, there can be a question from online. So here's a good one. Um, how do you reconcile, and actually this question is kind of for both of you from your different perspectives. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile your true belief in Islam or Christianity, Christianity with your acceptance of other religions? And can that, for you, work? What does that look like? Uh, well, the Quran says, um, be no compulsion in religion. There are several other verses in the Quran that repeat that message. Uh, certainly, um, when the Muslim population, first early Muslim community, were being persecuted in Mecca and they fled to Medina, they encountered Jewish tribes, Christian tribes who were there, and they didn't make anybody convert, okay? Despite Islam being this religion of the sword. Um, they didn't make anybody convert. They went along with them. They made treaties of them with peace. And they allowed them to continue whatever religion that they were practicing. Um, so I, I tolerate or whatever, accept other religions because I believe it is my religious obligation to do so. Um, Jews and Christians in the Quran are called Ahl Kitab, which means the people of the book, meaning the people who received an earlier revelation. Uh, it is in Islam, we do believe in the original Torah that was given to Prophet Musa or Moses, peace be upon him, and the Injil or the Gospel given to Prophet uh, Jesus, peace be upon him. We do believe in their original form. We believe those forms are no longer with us today. And there is, there is a hadith or saying, action of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that one time a, um, a tribe of Christians came through Medina and they needed to pray. And they heard of Muhammad and the community and heard that they were, you know, good people and, you know, and the Prophet said to them, use the mosque for your worship. And they did. So this group of Christians used the mosque for their worship. 
and that is a sound, authentic hadith. So when you see, hear stuff like ISIS, you know, beheading Coptic Christians on the shores of Libya, you can't find a single scholar anywhere in the world who will back them up. Any known reputable scholar, Islamic scholar, who actually agrees with anything they're doing. So, but I'm, yeah. I'm here to, interested yeah. to hear your take on that. You know, for me, it's uh, the commandment, uh, love the Lord your God with, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, you kind of live on the north side of town for me, but I still consider you my neighbor, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we are neighbors, and um, we have a, and the other, another passage is, uh, that, that I, is so foundational, God is love. And, uh, yeah. and, if, and if, that's, if that's where we start, if that's our starting point, well, then, then, then we're in it. Then it reconcile it? No, I'm, I'm going to live my, my faith, right. and I'm going to have your back. You right. know, that's, that's how, that's, that's, that's the foundational understanding that I come from. So we have an in-house guest, uh, Josh, back there. Uh, yeah. Um, you talked a little bit uh, uh, about it, but um, uh, but what things uh, give give you hope, kind of in spite of the the struggles that, that Muslims face? The troubles that Muslims face. Uh, what, what, what is the like you briefly mentioned? It, what's uh, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope? I believe I believe in this country. Um, it's just interesting that usually you know every new group of immigrants that come into this country have to pay a pretty hefty price. Mm. And it seems that instead of learning from history, we just keep on repeating it. You know, in Boston, they used to have signs, no Irish and no, no dogs and no Irish. Um, John F. Kennedy, when he ran for president, everybody was sure that the Pope was gonna take over the country. Um, people have this, this fear, uh, but people say you fear what you don't, the fear of the unknown. Uh, Dalia Mogahed, which is a very prominent Muslim uh, leader American leader, she said that uh, she rejects that notion that people fear what they don't know. You fear what you've been taught to fear. And I, I think that is, that is very, very true. Anti-Islamic sentiment is embedded in the Western mindset. Going back to the Middle Ages, it came over here on the boat with everything else. It's embedded in, in our psyche. And it's only until now that the majority of Western culture has had to actually deal with what Islam actually is. What does this religion actually teach? Uh, but what gives me hope is I, I believe in this country. I believe in the people in it. I believe in the government of this country. Um, I believe, what gives me hope is I believe that the majority of people are good. Um, I believe that religiously, and that's what gives me, that's what gives me hope. Cool. We, have, we have another question over here. Yeah, um, so going back to what you were talking about with like maybe grabbing coffee with the people who posted negative comments on, on your post bullets and articles or meeting with this restaurant owner, it, seems, it, looks, it sounds like you're, like you're try, reaching out to them and maybe like trying to get at what, what's causing this, this fear of Islamophobia or, or resentment towards you so what's the hardest thing about like going in and having these conversations and then what's the most fulfilling 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very challenging when you sit across from a table with a woman, that, you know, that tells you that this is ridiculous, that something that you hold so dear is ridiculous and it's a sign of oppression. Uh, but when I hear her stories, what I, I want... I want, to, I, want to, I want to throw her a bone. I want to throw you know, the restaurant owner a bone. Um, when she says that she had, you know, some Muslim neighbors in the past and, like, this incident happened and it turns out this guy was actually not acting very Islamic. It was kind of rude to her, yada, yada. And that was her only experience was that. And I, I felt bad, you know. If that's your only experience with a Muslim, maybe, you know, who's kind of rude or... You know, I want to give you maybe a different, you know, I want to give you a different perspective. And what's so rewarding is that when we left that conversation, we hugged. Now, I didn't get her at all to change her beliefs, and that was not at all, not at all while I was there. Um, I wanted her to give her an understanding that, hey, there is a different view of the world out there besides your own. The West likes to project on the world their view of the world. Okay. It's very hard to get beyond that and think, hey, there's a whole different way of looking at life here. And that way of that view is equally as valid as mine. Uh, but yeah, you know, giving her that hug at the end of the conversation, somebody else I met with, um, we still keep in touch uh, on Facebook. Uh, and what I, what I learned from it, you know, I met this one guy. I was like, okay, I pegged him wrong. He probably doesn't know anything about Islam. You know, white guy, he doesn't know anything about Islam. And, you know, I met with him. He actually was very well-versed on a lot of Islamic beliefs. So it taught me something, too. I'm not going out there thinking that I, uh, you know, I know everything there is to know about interfaith dialogue. He taught me something, too then I need to, I can't, I can't paint anybody with a, with a brush. He knew a lot, but again, he had a couple of negative kind of encounters with some Muslim neighbors. And so I think he needed to, he needed to hear some things about Islam explained to him in person. And again, that human connection, when you're able to look into somebody's eyes and get out from social media, from these, you know, Snapchat, bizarre, creepy photos, your profile pictures and stuff get out from behind that and meet people it's you know it, it does so much good and it, it, it's always it's such a thrill yeah. to come away from that conversation cool. there is such a huge diversity among Christians and you you've seen that from your observances uh, no doubt you yeah. know conservative yeah. uh, progressive evangelicals mainline just the works and oftentimes <laughs> we can't even talk to each other um i'm curious about the diversity among muslims and 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 what's that what that's like for you uh so you know in rochester there's about ten thousand muslims roughly 70 to 80 percent of them are somali so you do tend to see a huge divide between the somali muslim community and the non-somali muslim community here in rochester so here these differences are very much cultural, mm -hmm. very much cultural. There's very little differences in terms of theology, what divides us. Uh, you have the Somali culture who, um, the, the, the Somali community who tend to deal with more, um, you know, struggles with education in the school system. Uh, a lot of them come here and they don't speak English or the students go home and they struggle with their homework because the parents don't speak the language. 
or you know they're rushing home from school to go to their part-time job because they have to help their parents pay the bills whereas you have the other Muslim community here who tend to come and go with the Mayo Clinic they tend to be more well off very highly educated and English is not a problem at all so you have completely two ends of the spectrum um, there are people within both communities who see this problem this divide and have made strides to kind of bridge that gap. Uh, it's another area that I'm that I'm trying to work on as well to become more familiar with the with the Somali culture because some of the questions that I get have to do with what people see from the Somali culture or or the Gulf the Gulf uh, Arabs that they see kicking it around downtown because they're here like you know for the clinic and stuff okay. like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of the questions about those things. Um, you know, I get asked a lot about the Sunni-Shia divide and all that. You know, you see in Iraq, Sunnis and Shias going at That's a fairly recent phenomenon, and it is embedded in the political turmoil of that region. There's nowhere in the Quran. Oh, Sunni-Shia is not even mentioned in the Quran. The origin of Sunni-Shia has to deal with a political split um, after the prophet died, uh, there was a dispute about who would lead the community, not as a prophet. So Ali, the prophet's cousin, many people felt that he, as a blood relative, should lead the community. And then the other part believed that no, he actually appointed his friend Abu Bakr to lead the community. That was, that was the original divide. Now, over the centuries, uh, theological differences kind of crept in. But, you know, again, the whole Sunni-Shia thing that gets played up so much in the media mm -hmm. is so much of a, a cultural phenomenon to that area. It's a, it's a very local thing in, in, a, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Hey, there's, I heard there's another question right here. Uh, hi. There we go. Okay. Uh, so my question is just thinking about um, my own faith life is very... Um, it's important to me, it's got a lot of nuance, I could talk about it for hours and hours, but uh, there, there are also maybe one or two little things where, you know, if really pressed, I get, you know, like, this is why I get up and go to church, this is why, you know, I challenge myself outside my boundaries, or why I'm bringing this to my children, and so I know there's no quick answer to what does your faith mean to you, but, but would you be willing to share just maybe one or two little things about, you know, just for you personally, what uh, makes it so meaningful to you, uh, your faith? Uh, it's, it's the physical and, and the spiritual as well. Um, I love our worship. Uh, the fact that five times a day I put my head to the floor and a, not only in a mental submission but a, a physical, total physical submission as well. Um, there's no other more lowly position I could do with my body and put my head on the floor. And I am doing that towards God. And I do that five times a day. Um, ideally, you know, I'm speaking of in idealistic terms, this is how it should be for a Muslim. That brings me back to the presence of God five times a day, where I can reflect back on, okay, how's my day been going so far? You know, was I talking smack about somebody? I really shouldn't do that because the Quran warns me again and again not to do that. Um, you know, at, was I thinking of God when I did that? So it brings me back again and again. Um, I love I love fasting during the month of Ramadan. Uh, there's it, those rituals again of the mind and the body. 
that means so much to me, um, abstaining from food and water for about 14 hours a day um, when it's maybe even 100 degrees outside is an, is an extremely spiritual experience. And it's not unique to Islam either. And even the Quran says that it's not unique to Islam, that Christians and Jews were also doing it as well as a spiritual practice. Um, and there is just, in Islam, there is such an emphasis of just you and God and that it's all you need. And that if you are mindful of God, if you think about pleasing God, your obedience to God, because um, that's what Islam means, it means submission. And so a Muslim is one who submits. Uh, when I have that in my mind that I am submitting to God, I feel at total peace. I feel at total peace that, um, so my religion for me is no matter what may go on in my world, my whole house could be burned down and everybody I love may be taken from me. But I know that that is a test from God and that I will be rewarded for that loss in the next world and that no matter what, I have God. And this world is so temporal. It's so temporal that, you know, we all talk about success in this life. How could, what's, what's success? You know, you have the, the biggest house. You know, you have this big car, you know, and I, I fall for it too. But true success is standing on your day of judgment and going before God and saying, you know what, I think I really did give it my best shot. I think I really did try my best to obey you. And if I have it in my mind at the end of the day that that's what I am doing, then I mean, I just feel like I'm the happiest person in the world. And that nothing, nothing, nothing can take that. Nothing can take away God's presence, nothing. Nothing in this world can take away God's presence. And that, no matter what religion you believe in, that should be your ultimate comfort. Your ultimate comfort is knowing that God is always there. We have an online question now. Uh, yeah, so there's someone uh, who would like to know uh, from you, Regina, a little bit more about some of the strong female examples in Islam that you talked about. Oh, that was a good question. Uh, wife of Pharaoh, and she's literally called wife of Pharaoh throughout the Quran. She's a woman that lived in, you know, with her husband. We tend to see our husbands and men in this world tend to think of themselves as gods, but her husband, literally the Pharaoh, thought that he was God. But yet she believed in the existence of one God. Uh, in the Quran, that's what it said. And, uh, you know, so she was pretty much dealing with this domestic violence situation. And the Quran speaks of her as being a woman that despite all of this, you know, uh, cultural norms up to, to believe otherwise, she held to her beliefs despite all that. And she is highly praised and mentioned throughout the Quran. Um, Hagar, the wife of Ibrahim, peace be upon him, uh, when, the, when Muslims perform the Hajj, the pilgrimage once a year, the, uh, it's a 10-day pilgrimage. A lot of the rites and rituals that take place are actually in honor of Hagar. They have very little to do with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They have to do with Hagar and Ibrahim, Abraham. Uh, again, she is seen as a woman who follows, obeys God's will, went out into the de desert with her infant son, Ishmael, because of God's will. And you know, because of that, you have um, the Arab people. That's what Muslims believe. Um, Maryam, Mary, 
she is mentioned, I think, more times in the Quran than she is in the Gospel. Um, I only say that because I just find that really interesting. Usually whenever Jesus is mentioned, peace be upon him, in the Quran, it's always Jesus, son of Maryam, son of Maryam, son of Maryam. It's, I don't know if, it's, if he's ever just called Jesus. It's very rare. It's usually always in reference to her. That when her mother, um, again, it's very similar in the gospel, that her mother was elderly, mm-hmm. barren, and she mm-hmm. prayed for a child. She prayed for a son. And so in the Quran, when she gives birth, she said, oh, it's a daughter. And the Quran, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, yeah, we knew who it was going to be. But the son that you wanted is nothing like the daughter that you have. Meaning that no son that you could have imagined could even compare with this woman, this Maryam, this Mary. And the honor of Jesus, peace be upon him, is not only being a prophet in his own right, but it's also being the son of this amazing woman. And one of the chapters in the Quran is actually called uh, Surat al-Maryam, Maryam. And then we have Khadija, the wife of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who was 15 years older than him, and she proposed marriage to him. Uh, she was his uh, employer, and she was a widow. She liked his character, and she said, would you like to get married? He said, yeah. And they had a very successful, happy marriage. And when he first received the first revelations of the Quran, it was a very tumultuous and disturbing experience for him. The first person he ran to was his wife. And it said, cover me, cover me. And she covered him with a blanket and comforted him. And he said, I, I think I'm going mad. And she said, look, you've always believed in the existence of one God. I don't believe you are going mad. I do believe that this is a true message, that you are a prophet. And they say behind every great man is a great woman. Absolutely, um, absolutely right there. And they had a very successful marriage. And he did not remarry until uh, she died. And um, of course, an Aisha, uh, a woman that he married after Khadija died, she was also a very, very strong figure. She would, she would talk right back to him in front of other people. And he, he didn't care. Um, she gave her opinion a lot about that early Muslim community. He went to her so often and the other women of the community for advice um, about women's concerns. Um, against the pagan uh, army of Mecca, she often at least once rode out into battle with him. Um, so, that was a good question. Thank you. Thank you. I think uh, our time is about up. I want to ask wow. one last. I know, isn't it crazy? Fast. We'll have, to have, we'll have to do this again. We'll have to do yeah. it again. Um, l- just one last question as we wrap it up. Uh, in personal conversations and media and lots of places, as you've been saying, as we all know, there's uh, terrible things that are being said about, yeah. about Muslims. And for those of us who are not Muslim, uh, how can we confront, or what would you suggest that we confront and resist and offer an alternative view? Uh, you know, just get in touch with your local Muslim neighbor. Um, I would say watch the news, but watch it very carefully. Watch it very carefully. Whenever they do have a, uh, a story about Islam and Muslims, kind of remember about the conversation from this evening. Um, you know, there was, there was a study done, in the, but the New York Times, looking back at the past, I think 20 years, looking at New York Times headlines, over 2 million headlines. And they found, anytime a headline mentioned Muslim or Islam, that the overwhelming majority of, of, the, of the feeling of the headline was negative. 
that the feelings, the, that the amount of negative feeling coming from these headlines from the New York Times actually numbered more than headlines about cocaine and cancer. So basically giving this feeling, the sentiment that we're just fed every day that Muslims are actually more dangerous and more of a problem than cocaine or, or cancer. Um, and that really puts it, really puts it into perspective. Um, um, and I'll, I'll just give you one more example. I was watching news out of the cities and recently, uh, the news happened in, like, just recently, um, no, this didn't happen recently, it was like a few years ago. Some, some idiot, some nitwit attacked some synagogue in New York State, he was Muslim. So the very last line of the news broadcast was, and the, you know, the man who was a recent convert to Islam. Cut, that was it, that was the end of the thing. They failed to mention that the guy was actually a career criminal. And obviously his newfound faith has not yet kicked in, nor, nor has he gotten the message <laughs> of it. Um, so th that's the kind of stuff you have to be very, very, very careful about. But I do but believe that local, local news, I think, is doing a good job. National news, you have to be very, very careful. As with anything, you know, uh, any news that we consume with yes. a critical eye, I mean, you know, you can, like you said, you can find, <laughs> find anything on the internet on the interwebs, you know, and... Uh, yeah, you type yeah. in Islam and like Amazon, usually the first 10 books that come up, they're actually books against Islam. Yeah. Written by non-Muslims. Uh, so yeah, you, have to, you have to be very, very careful. So be critical of, of the information that be we critical. see yeah. and maybe as important, maybe more important, meet our neighbors and, meet, and love yes. our neighbors. Meet our and, neighbors. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Regina, thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions and coming here this evening. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We're just so thankful to have this conversation with Regina. We think it's really important, and we hope it moves us toward further conversation and connection with one another. To learn more about Regina, you can find her on Facebook, at Twitter, via at C-I-D-I underscore M-N, that's C-D-M-N, or visit the website for Community Interfaith Dialogue on Islam at C-I-D-I-M-N dot org. But for now, we'll see you next time. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. See ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.